Okay, the reading for today comes from Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 to 33. If you have a church Bible, it's on pages 12 to 13. It's also going to be up on the screen. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favour in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seers of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of, 50, of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? The Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham spoke up again. Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, what if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will you destroy the whole city for a lack of five people? If I find 45 there, he said, I will not destroy it. Once again, he spoke up to him. What if only 40 are found there? He said, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. 
Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if only thirty can be found there? He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. Abraham said, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, what if only twenty can be found there? He said, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, May the Lord not be angry, but let me speak just once more. What if only ten can be found there? He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he left, and Abraham returned home. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Kind of a chapter of two halves there, isn't it? But it is a privilege to be able to um, chip off Genesis 18 and speak on that today. Uh, Let's pray as we do so. Father, thanks that we can gather this morning as your people. We thank you for your word and we pray that as we come to Genesis 18 now and as we reflect on those promises made so long ago, we pray that you would help us um, to uh, study it, consider it, help us all to find their yes in your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, what promises do we rely on each and every day? I have this agreement or promise of sorts with my bank that they can hang on to all of my money while I'm not using it, but that when I want it, I can have it. So great is this agreement that I have with them that my employer actually gives my money direct to them and they sort it out for me. I hope it is all still there. I also have this agreement with my bank that I will pay them back some money that they lent me to buy a house, of which they own more than I do currently. But I, did, I do remember that I did promise to pay them back, and then some, and even more, more recently. And if I stopped doing that, to pay them back, they would surely be upset, and probably rightly so, because I promised that I would pay them back, even more now. Promises are important, aren't they? Promises kept are good and wonderful. Promises that are broken are a tragedy. And we go through life surrounded by many, many promises, of which the consequences of breaking them can be anything from trivial all the way through to life-shattering. So what promises significantly affect you from day to day? What promises are there that cause us to be afraid of the future? What promises keep us going as Christians? Well, today we will see that God is faithful to all his promises, that he builds on them, he provides detail to them, and that Jesus is ultimately the fulfilment and the yes to them. So let's have a look at Genesis chapter 18. Now, we know by the dates that this chapter follows very closely in time from the chapter before, chapter 17, that we looked at last week. We know this because in both chapters, God has said that in about a year, he would return and Abraham would have a son. In Genesis 17, God has has again presented his promises and blessings to Abraham, but now in a more detailed and amplified way. He has changed their names and he has introduced the covenant of circumcision. 
and he has begun to flesh out what it is to be of Abraham's household or to identify with Abraham's household. This is the beginning of the identity of the people of God. So it is highly likely that the vast majority of men within the camp of Abraham are or have recently been out of action due to circumcision. So it's into this context that the three men walk in Genesis 18, verse 2. Now the event confirms that the Lord is one of these men in verse 1, and we learn later that the other two are angels of the Lord. It's difficult to understand at what point Abraham knew uh, that it was the Lord and his angels, but over the course of the chapter, they elicit enough information to confirm that they are at least divine and likely the Lord. But regardless of when Abraham identifies his guests as the Lord and his entourage, he is most hospitable on their arrival. He gets the feeling that they are a bit of a big deal. Abraham was just hanging out at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, as the boss man does, and then it is hard not to be struck by how quickly he then moves, particularly in light of the circumcision extravaganza that has occurred pretty recently. He hurries, he runs, he directs, and he's in quite a frantic state to be as hospitable as possible to these men. And then at the end of it, to wait on them from a distance while they eat. He is earnest in his hospitality to them. And it's an honest meal. Steak, bread and butter. All hurriedly prepared and in bulk, it would appear. There's about 16 kilograms of flour that Sarah is asked to just make into bread there. And a cow, which is still living which would have had taken quite a bit of preparing, one would imagine. But it is honest and genuine in the quest to be hastily hospitable. And so, maybe Abraham works out that this is the Lord here when one of those men asks after his wife by name in verse 9. Or surely he understands by verse 10 as the Lord himself repeats the promise that he has made when they first met back in Genesis 12, some 24 years ago, again in Genesis chapter 15, some 13 years ago, and then again in most detail in Genesis 17, some days or weeks ago. But when the Lord repeats his promise to Abraham in Genesis 18, this time it does not appear to be for Abraham's sake that he states it but for Sarah's it is Sarah who they ask after and it is Sarah that they know is close by and that we know is listening in on their conversation Uh, Genesis 18 verse 10 now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent which was behind him Abraham and Sarah were, were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? It's almost like if Genesis 17 was a discussion about promises and then consequential covenant promises for Abraham, then Genesis 18 
is for the sake and benefit of Sarah, meeting her where she was at and making her aware of the promises of God afresh and enhanced. Now, it may be that Abraham has not told Sarah about the revelation from the Lord in Genesis chapter 17, that within the year they would have a son of their own by their own bodies. But it is evident that this is news to Sarah, who laughed to herself as she thought about the improbability of such a wonderful blessing. Will I now have this pleasure after I'm worn out and Abraham is old? Sarah laughed. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. The Lord reprimanded Sarah for her response to the promise that had been reaffirmed. The issue was the lack of faith that it betrayed in Sarah's heart. This just wasn't going to happen. And yet the Lord's response is, this is going to happen. It is completely within the power of God to do this. Why would you doubt? Her doubtful response, having been called out, Sarah lies and says she didn't laugh, afraid at having had such a response and being found out. Her motivation was that of fear and not faith. And so she is called out again for having lied about laughing. Though we're not sure whether it was Abraham or the Lord responsible for the punchline of verse 15. Now this to me is a troubling passage. It is here to highlight that Sarah had some ways to go in her journey of faith and yet in the immediately preceding chapter, Abraham laughs at the thought of having a son when he and Sarah are so old and he is not called out for it. Add to the fact that their future son's name is Isaac, which means he laughs, and we can see that there's actually something going on here that we need to dig into. And it is quite important for our understanding of God as it relates particularly to the next couple of chapters of Genesis, which are very difficult indeed. Abraham laughs and Sarah laughs. Abraham is not reprimanded. Sarah is reprimanded. And the laugh was the same. It was careful and tepid pleasure at the thought of such a wonderful thing as having a son but with a backdrop of the earthly reality of their worn-out bodies. Sarah was 90, Abraham was 99, but the laugh was the same. But the posture of the heart was different. We can tell that from the text. In Genesis 17, 17, Abraham falls face down in reverence and laughs. In Genesis 18, 10, Sarah is out of sight and when called out is noted to lie and to be afraid. Now, we wouldn't necessarily have picked it up, but God did. The Lord sees the posture of our hearts. What we think and feel is not lost on God. 
It is lost on each other, but God can see our hearts and he gets the call right every single time. So when the Lord goes to inquire or to judge someone, he is not doing it on face value alone. He sees the furthest recesses of their hearts and minds and is able to make the right and correct judgment 100% of the time. So, for the first half of Genesis 18, what we are to remember here is that the fulfilment of the promise is close. It is literally within 12 months, which is great because it has been some 24 years since the promise was first made. God will be faithful to his promises in his good and perfect timing. A fact that Abraham wholeheartedly believes now, whilst for Sarah it takes that little bit longer. And we see the Lord deal with Sarah's heart's posture as it is at this moment in time. But within 12 months, they will have a son, Isaac, which means he laughs. And it is at that time, in Genesis 21, within the year, that Sarah will be filled with such joyous laughter as she basks in the fulfilled promises of God. No longer doubting, but full of faith in a faithful God. Well, this is a chapter of two halves. And one of the things we need to wrestle with, and we'll wrestle with a bit later, is how they are held together. Because on first reflections, they appear to be quite different. One, is about, one half is about the blessing of a son to Abraham and Sarah. The other is about the Lord's onward journey of investigation into the outcry he has heard regarding Sodom and Gomorrah. But as we come to the second half of this chapter, we need to remember the incredibly unique relationship that Abraham had with the Lord. The Lord had chosen Abraham out of nowhere. And since then, their relationship has been one of intimate discussion back and forth. Whilst remaining faithful to the Lord... Abraham has held the Lord to account on numerous occasions, even as he has done the wrong thing on some of those occasions. And the Lord has worked with Abraham to mature his faith and bring him into an understanding of his promises, his love for him and his family and his plans for blessing of the whole world. Theirs is a unique relationship where they talked with one another as if face to face which sheds some light on this remarkable and disturbing passage. Well, Abraham's hospitality has been well received and as the men get up to leave, Abraham walks along with them and they ominously look down on the city towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the Lord says this in verse 17... Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him for I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. This is some kind words that the Lord has to share again. But this time... 
The focus is on the nation of Abraham and the nations that will then be blessed through him. For Abraham has been chosen so that he will direct his children and household to keep the way of the Lord so that they will be blessed and so that they will be a blessing to the nations. But let's go back 24 years and return to Genesis 12 where this blessing originated. God said to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Abraham and his family will be a blessing to the nations. But notice that where God will bless those who bless him, he will curse those who curse him. This is not Oprah, where everyone wins a prize. If you are against the people of God and therefore God, you will be cursed. And we are going to now build up to the fact that this is not the position you want to be in. But Abraham is told to teach his children well, that they might stay within the orbit of the promised blessings of God. The Lord goes on in verse 20. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sins so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. But as the other two went on their way, Abraham stood before the Lord, like as in stood in his path of travel. The God of the universe who made everything, Abraham just stands in his way in order to confront him on something. This is brazen. This is incredible. But Abraham, at this moment, feels the necessity of interceding for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the issue that Abraham raises is the issue of justice. Will the Lord be just? How can God just go and destroy a whole town? Surely that is too broad a brushstroke to make or too general a way to behave. What about the righteous? Will they be swept up in all of this too? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Abraham says in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Will not the judge of all the earth do right? Because on first impressions, this intervention of the Lord appears like it might have all the hallmarks of casting the net just that little bit too wide. Abraham is asking a good question here that helpfully reveals for him and for us the astounding extent of God's mercy, even in the face of necessary justice. The Lord is the judge. He will do right. But more than that, the Lord knows the hearts of all those who are present, as he has just shown with Sarah, and all those who are down in the cities below now. 
Now, Abraham's intercession is pretty amazing on a number of fronts. Firstly, he intercedes for those not worthy. He knows his nephew Lot and his family are down there. Perhaps he only has them on their mind, but that is not specifically supported by the text. As he pleads with the Lord based on his perfect justice, he is pleading for the righteous not to meet the same fate and so somehow for the righteous to assist in the salvation of the unrighteous. Secondly, he highlights God's perfect judgment. Abraham states it as plainly as he could, though I am still unclear as to how Abraham knew this characteristic specifically. He reminds the Lord of his rightful place as judge and his righteousness in doing so. The Lord would not get it wrong. Which which brings us to the last point. Abraham sets the groundwork now to demonstrate how grievously sinful the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were. He leaves the Lord to go on his way, satisfied that he has done what he needs to, to save the righteous and not carte blanche judge the place. But he has set the backdrop such that Sodom and Gomorrah's sinfulness will be laid bare. And so the Lord and Abraham have this discussion which goes back and forth. What if there are 50 righteous people in that town? Well, no, I won't destroy it if there are 50 righteous people. 45? No. 40? 30? 20? 10? If there are 10 people in Sodom and Gomorrah who are righteous, then the Lord will not destroy the place. But this is drawn out, and we're meant to understand that through the iterative back and forth, the stakes are getting higher and higher. If there are only 10 righteous in the whole of Sodom and Gomorrah, it will not be destroyed. And why didn't he go further? Five, down to one? Well, he probably could have. But for a city of which he knows that Lot and his family are in, on the balance of probability, Abraham maybe just reckons that ten might be enough. But we need to wait until next week to see the depravity of the place to see the mercy of God and the judgment of God in one fell swoop. This passage here sets us up for the acknowledgement that Sodom and Gomorrah was evil to the core, that God was right in his judgment and he was merciful to Lot and his daughters as he maintained his promises to Abraham to bless him and his family. So coming back to my question... How does Genesis 18, a chapter of two halves, hold itself together? Well, we see blessings and curses. The writing was on the wall for Sodom in Genesis 14, where the king of Sodom, after having been defeated and then protected by Abraham in battle, came out and asked for all his stuff back. Contrasted with Melchizedek, king of Salem, who blesses Abraham, Whoever blesses you, I will bless, and whoever curses you, I will curse. There is the hint there, back in Genesis 14, that all is not well with Sodom. And you can go even further back to Genesis 13, 13, 
where we get an even more explicit hint that Sodom is wicked, sinning greatly against the Lord. And though their sin was grievous, there is hope for Sodom. For as we've seen today, God's promise is mercy for all for the sake of ten people. And we'll hear the result of God's investigation when Johnny opens up Genesis 19 for us next week. But for now, Genesis 18 holds together around the promises of God as it has been since Genesis 12 and indeed as it has been since the beginning. And if we now see, God promises not to sweep up the righteous with the wicked. An amazing promise to Abraham that has reverberated and stayed true throughout millennia. And most wonderfully, it affects all Christians here today. As the judge of the earth, God judges rightly because he sees the posture of every single one of our hearts, just as he did as he looked down on the fateful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Our thoughts are as words to him. Our mind's musings are heard and considered by him. We are an open book and more. And that kind of power in the hands of one who is just and true offers mercy and peace. Well, that's the best kind of power. Remember David, King David, he took such comfort in the Lord knowing his inmost being. God knows our hearts and that is okay. God will not sweep up the righteous with the wicked. So, who is righteous? Well, that's the question that we need to turn our mind to right now. Abraham was righteous. In the first instance, we see here that Abraham, over the past 24 years, has believed the Lord at his word. And this has pleased the Lord and it has been credited to him as righteousness. Now, righteousness can be described as the rightness of God to bestow on us the mercy and grace and restored relationship that he does, even though we haven't earned it or deserve it. But we get stuck right there because the Lord still needs to be just. Sin needs to be atoned for. It needs to be dealt with. It needs to be punished. A just God who perfectly administers justice and judgment should wipe out everyone. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. A just God should do to us and to Lot and to Abraham and to Sarah what he did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And yet he doesn't. And it is not like Abraham and Sarah and Lot are sinless and perfect and so avoid the judgment of God. No. The last couple of chapters here in Genesis have shown that they are hopeless sinners, just like the rest of us. They believe the Lord and that is it. And it is credited to them as righteousness. Their faith in the Lord here is their salvation, just as the disbelief and the faithlessness and the pursuit of evil in Sodom and Gomorrah is their judgment. And so how is sin atoned for and people who are sinful made right? How is it that the righteous are not swept up with the wicked? Well, God himself enters the world 
And he takes that sin upon himself in the person of Jesus. God's promises have their yes in Jesus Christ. Jesus' death is the punishment for the sins of the world for those who believe. His resurrection is the proof that his sacrifice was effective. Sin is defeated and new life is available and assured for those who believe. In fact, there is a lot of things going for those who believe the promises of God and the fact that they are all fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ at the cross. That is how we are made righteous. That is how God can look on those who are sinful as if they had no sin because they believe. And in the same way, Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. You should go and check out Romans chapter 4. It is essentially Paul's sermon on Genesis 17, 18 around the righteousness of Abraham. And so that is the case for faith. But what of Sodom and Gomorrah? When we hear of Sodom and Gomorrah from here on in the scriptures, we are to remember the justice and judgment of God and his mercy for the righteous, his mercy for the faithful and the opportunity that he gives his people to intercede on behalf of others. But for now, at the end of Genesis chapter 18, Abraham walks away from this conversation with the Lord, sure and certain of the promises of God, deeply looking forward to meeting his son in just under a year's time. So how does this chapter hold together? The faithfulness of God to his promises and the wonderful promise of the Lord that he will not sweep up the righteous with the wicked. No, we have seen that at the cross, Jesus has settled the debt of sin once and for all, for all those who believe through his death and resurrection. If that is what you settle on to believe today, then that is good and that is enough. Amen.